You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, J-Town. What is the church supposed to look like? The book of Titus shows us what it means to be changed people living together in peace. Welcome to our sermon series, This Beautiful Church, Seeing and Being the People of God. My name is Lyle, one of the pastors here. And I just want to say welcome. Yeah, glad you're here. Just like Tony said earlier, uh, if it's your first time, there's a couple ways that you can um, make your presence known. And some of what we talked about uh, before, uh, our language we kind of use around here, you can text the word welcome to the number on the screen there. There's a connect card in the seat back in front of you. We would love to give you a gift. We would have one out in the atrium at the start here sign that we'd love to give to you guys. Um, and just get to know you, put a face with a name and kind of hear your story a little bit. So um, yeah, if you feel free to do that, I mean, we'd love for you to, to do that. Secondly, each time we gather together, we uh, recognize the reality that God is a gracious and good, giving God. And one of the ways that we respond to his graciousness and goodness to us is through our own generosity and being open-handed with our stuff. And so there's several ways that you can give. You can give online um, at the links there on the screen. If you brought a check or cash or whatever, you can drop that off in the little wooden boxes in the back as you leave. Uh, And usually about once a month, we want to keep you aware of kind of how we are and where we are and what we're doing as far as giving goes. So you can look and see over the last four weeks where we've been. Um, And then the other graph just kind of shows you uh, how, what's the, where are we when you look at the overall budget? Our fiscal year ends in two months. And so we are uh, about $15,000 below target. And so, um, so yeah, we would love to kind of see that shrink a lot or even close that gap over the next two months. And um, yeah, praying that God would do that. I know we've got um, some tax refunds coming, amen, right? You know, and so I don't know, the Lord may impress upon your heart to give some of that to the church. And so I would encourage you to think about how you can give above and beyond over the next couple of months and see if we can kind of close that gap, all right? Super. It's always a wonderful transition. So uh, just name the awkwardness, amen? Uh, So let's go to Titus chapter two. That's where we are this morning, right in the heart of the book. And this is kind of like where Titus is wanting to to lead us here. It's kind of the crux of the book. So uh, yeah, let's stand together in honor of reading God's word. If you don't have a Bible, the passage of scripture will be on the screen. Um, Yeah, we used to have bulletins. We'll bring those back someday. So uh, one of those things we took away during COVID, so... Uh, They might come back in a different way, but they're coming back someday. All right, we're going to read all of chapter 2. So it's just 15 verses. So if you get tired, you can sit down. I don't want anybody passing out. Amen? Uh, But hear the word of the Lord. So Paul writing to Titus, and that's the you in this passage. But you, meaning Titus, are to proclaim these things consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible and sound in faith, love and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, homemakers, kind, and in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. In the same way, encourage young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he does not have anything bad to say about us. Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to 
to be well-pleasing and not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and it's given to you in love. Amen. You may be seated. And if you're comfortable, you can take your mask off uh, during the sermon and just ask that you put those big bad boys back on as we take communion. All right. So we can call them bad boys, I guess. Right. Um, All right. This is what um, kind of start off here talking about uh, what's going on with Paul here in chapter two or what he's trying to get after. I don't know if you guys uh, and I might have shared this before uh, years ago, but I don't know if you guys went you know, at home where you had these little house mantras, like these little sayings that you would say in your household. And um, usually that was because they wanted to kind of like determine some, some type of behavior. You know what I'm saying? You guys know what I'm saying? Like these little phrases that you remember. So I'll give a few from my household. I'm sure probably you've heard these too. All right. So these are like not new in my home. And if I had more time, I could probably think of other ones that I grew up with. And you can kind of finish some of these. I brought you into this world and I can... There we go. We all grew up in the same household then. Amen. Uh, another one, mom ain't happy. There we go. Yeah, another one that my wife grew up with uh, that may not be, I didn't grow up with this, but it was one that she said that they said often to her is that, you know, remember the name you bear. So, and the reason there's probably more, you guys could probably share me your own little house mantras, whatever you want to call them, uh, a little house you know, phrases, I don't know. Um, but the reason why we have those is not necessarily in order to memorize the phrase, just like I said earlier, they're to kind of dictate and define behavior that you're wanting, right? So, you know, I brought you into the world, I can take you out of the world. It's just basically like, you need to respect me. <laughs> it's like, you know, I'm providing a roof over your head and I don't care if you're five or 16, I'm still the dad, right? I'm saying like, I mean, not in kind of like an arrogant oppressive way, but it's just basically wanting a behavior of respect and honor. You know, mom ain't happy, nobody happy. The behavior there is like, hey, your mom works inside the home as well as outside the home. Do your stinking chores, right? Make up your stupid bed, get your underwear off the floor, clean up after yourself, close a drawer, close a drawer. That I mean, that's not hard. That's like humanity 101, push a drawer in. So maybe I need to see some counseling on that one. So, um, Remember the name you bear? It's just kind of behavior that like, hey, recognize you, you're carrying a name here as you go out into the community. Like, you know, represent us well, you know, live in a respectable way and don't do stupid stuff basically is what uh, I would kind of define that as. And so in a similar way, and I know every illustration has uh, breakdowns. They don't, it's not easy to transfer over. In a similar way, Paul's kind of doing a similar thing here when he unpacks here in, in Titus chapter two, all these behaviors that he's, Uh, and commanding and encouraging older men, older women, younger men, younger women, all these little categories. And and what's happening here in this kind of first century, there would be these, what they called household codes. It's kind of hard to say that. First service had a little trouble. Household 
codes. And one of the most famous one was out of uh, Aristotle wrote one. And so and if you would read this, and we're not doing that this morning, but uh, these household codes were like how you function in the household. Like, you know, was it husband, wife, you know, children, all that kind of stuff. All these like mantras, so to speak. And if you'll notice, like what, if you had these codes kind of like right beside you, you would see that Paul's kind of basically pulling some of these out. But what he's doing is he's kind of bringing a, um, uh, for lack of a better term, kind of a gospel centrality to this, more Christ-centered understanding of these behaviors and and why you live these out here. And so what I want to do this morning, uh, in light of kind of the, 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 the major theme that I feel like Paul's trying to get after here in chapter two, I want to uh, pull out kind of three uh, observations that I think Paul is wanting us to see here. So I'm not, you, you may be a little disappointed in this, and it's okay, you know, you can be disappointed. I'm not, I'm not going into detail of all the behaviors. Uh, I, I think some of them are pretty self-explanatory. I might highlight a couple that can be kind of confusing in our culture. But what I'm trying to do is I don't want us to get lost in um, the forest with the trees. I want to make sure we see kind of the forest. Is that good? You guys with me on that one? Of what Paul is trying to do here. And, and I'm going to give them to you. So I got three, all right? So I always work with an outline up here. Sometimes I tell you, sometimes I keep you guessing, right? Just part of communication. But today I'm giving it to you. So if you're an outline guy, you like to take notes, it's going to be the best sermon you ever heard. Amen. So here, here are the three that we're going to just see in this, um, this passage here. The first one is this, this new life, right? So that's what we describe this as. Paul talks about it in Corinthians as, you know, when you come to faith in Christ, you're a brand new creation. So you're fully given and then you are also given this new life. So you'll see in this passage that this new life must be learned. It's not automatically deposited to you on day one. You got to learn it. Second thing you'll see here, this new life, uh, for a lack of better terms, uh, I don't love this word, but this is all I can come up with. Uh, you're, it's an advertisement. Like you are a billboard. You're a walking billboard of this new life. Some of us may be doing okay. Some of us may be doing pretty bad, Right? And the last thing I want to kind of bring out, and hopefully this will land with some encouragement, because uh, this can be a little challenging, uh, that this new life, this, these behaviors that Paul is outlining for us here in chapter 2 is possible. If you're taking notes, you can capitalize is, I-S, right? Star it, underline it, put a box around it. You can live like this. This is possible. And Paul tells us why here. All right. Let's dive in. First one is this. This new life must, and I really emphasize must here, must be learned. The reason why I emphasize must is because I think Paul is emphasizing it here. Notice, and I'm going to fly through these 15 verses really fast. Notice how many times Paul says the word teach or uses a synonym that's similar or kind of carries the, um, the understanding that he's talking about teaching. Just, just notice this. Look, verse one starts off, but you are to proclaim. Some translations have teach. That's what he has there. You skip down to verse three in the same way, older women, blah, blah, blah. They are to what? You see that? Teach. There it is. What is good? Verse four, so that they may encourage. Last time I checked that when you encourage something or encourage someone, it's not just nonverbals. It's something coming out of your mouth, right? 
So, so that's a synonym, so to speak, of teaching. Something's coming out of your mouth in order to encourage somebody. Says it again in verse six. In the same way, here's the word, encourage. Something coming out of your mouth. Verse seven, in, in everything, make yourself an example of good words with integrity and dignity in your, there's our word again, teaching. Verse eight, your message. Same thing, message has content. Message is, is spoken, it's coming out. Verse eight. Uh, verse 12, instructing. There it is again, this idea of teaching again. Verse 15, it's almost like he bookends this whole section. Proclaim these things, or some translations have literally teach these things. So if you weren't counting, I'll count for you. That's eight times. And this is like hermeneutics 101. And hermeneutics this is basically like the study of the Bible, all right? I'm not that smart. Just know that word. Amen. Um, this is Hermeneutics 101. When someone repeats something, that means he's emphasizing something. Don't miss a repeat, repeated word or a synonym of that word. Like, some, like the writer's trying to tell us something. And I think what Paul is trying to help us see is this, is that for us to behave in this new way that he is outlining for us in these first, these 15 verses, for us to behave like this, you've got to learn it. You have to learn how to live like this. And I think I quoted this on our first sermon that we did on this kind of opening up the book. I don't remember, didn't get a chance to look at my first sermon. But if I did, just hear it again. Eugene Peterson says this, and he's trying to give us kind of like a a, a summary of what Titus is about when he says this. Titus is given the responsibility for laying the foundations for a Christian community in a culture that does not know much about a life of discipleship. So guys, look, I'm, I'm kind of stating the obvious, but at the same time, I, I, I think we forget this. Whenever you come to faith in Christ, so I was seven years old when God saved me. And my tradition, this is kind of how that worked out. You talk to your parents, you have a conversation with them. Then usually one of those services, either on a Sunday night or a Sunday morning, yes, we went to two services on Sundays. I know it's a shocker for some of you, like, holy cow, I can't believe that. But we did, and we, it was the same service, but a different sermon, right? Different sermon, but same service. Now, on Sunday night, I remember it like it was yesterday. I, I walked forward, grabbed Pastor um, um, Ralph. I can't remember his last name right now. My gosh. Moving on. Uh, and just basically said, man, I want to become a Christian. And then they would take you back to a different room which sounds really weird and strange right now. But back in the day, you know what I'm saying? The 70s is like kind of normal. That's what you did. Nothing weird happened at that time. They just explained the gospel like my mom and dad did. And then I prayed to receive Christ. And in that moment, guess what did not happen? I did not have all this content of how I'm now supposed to live completely deposited upon me by the Holy Spirit as a seven-year-old. In fact, I would guess this, that probably walking out of that room, I disobeyed mom and dad somewhere close before the night ended. Amen? And probably said something stupid to my brother at that moment, probably deservingly so, because my brother would do stupid things all the time. Amen? Right? I'm just trying to state the obvious here sometimes that we forget, like this new way of living must be taught. You've got to learn it. And the reason why, because if you're reading this, it feels like uh, Paul is emphasizing specific behaviors here. He's not giving an exhaustive list, 
but he's emphasizing specific behaviors. Why is that, Lau? Because this is what's going on in the church. It's like these new believers are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and how do they know how to live? The only way they know how to live is a Cretan way of living. So of course they're going to come into the church and say, hey, let's get wasted. (laughs) You know, that's what I did before. Like, that's what we're doing. Hey, let's lie. Let's be dishonest. Let's, you know, indulge ourselves. I mean, it's not like on day one, all of that stops and you know exactly what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. No, it's like, hey, you know what? Stop drinking so much. I know that's what you used to do as a Cretan, but you're, you're a follower of Jesus now. Stop being so respectful. Think about what you're saying, what you're using. Have some self-control, right? Guess what? If you don't have self-control, you'll ruin your life. That was the Cretan way of life. There's a whole nother way of living. And, and it's got to be learned. Learned. It has to be taught. Sometimes I think we have a tendency to take this chapter and um, make it more about the how this is going to happen versus the big point that Paul is after. And this is all I mean. Some of us will take chapter two or churches will or individuals will and they'll create a whole discipleship plan of this. Oh, this is a Titus 2 discipleship plan. Or, I mean, I've seen books all, all over the place. And I'm not saying they're, they're wrong. It's wrong to do that. Please hear me. I'm not making fun of that. It's a great thing to do. But I think we're missing the point. So every single one of us have in our mind what teaching may look like. It may look like this. It may look like in a classroom setting where you got a person lecturing, you're in seats or whatever. It could look like one-on-one discipleship. It could look like in a small group. It could just be like you've got an individual that you're just spending time with over the next two to three years. And maybe there's not a lot of content that's being taught at that moment, but you're kind of rubbing life in life. You're trying to, you're actually observing and seeing how they treat their family, what they do at their work, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. All of that, I would say, is teaching, right? So it's not just about focusing on how you do this. The point is this, you got to learn it. It's not just deposited to you on day one. And here's what I would say also, you're still learning at day 3,000. There never comes a time as a follower of Jesus Christ where you're done. There's always a posture of humility. That's why I got my hands open. Open-handedness. I'm still growing. I'm still learning. I'm not a finished book. One of the things that we've been talking about um, over these last few months, I've mentioned this a few times, as we've been praying and thinking and dreaming and whiteboarding uh, what does God have for us over these next several years and the leaning into like what we talked about the first sermon about discipleship and formation here. Uh, one of the things I think that we have seen that's been a gap in our church is that we don't have a space where learning is the highest value. This may be the only space that we have on a weekly basis. So you may have heard me say this before from stage, and maybe you've heard it in a membership class that we talk about us being a two-wing church. You know, we, we gather every Sunday to rehearse the gospel and remind ourselves of who God is and hear the word of God. And then the other wing of us, we scatter it in homes so we can do life together and encourage one another as we walk uh, this life and this journey with Jesus. And at the heart of this is the gospel. And so that's beautiful. I mean, I'm not saying we're, we're abandoning this, all right? Really great to even say that. It's like, that sounds awesome. But here's the problem. There's a massive gap between what happens on Sunday 
And when you roll into someone's home, there's a massive gap of what you know. And we're making massive assumptions that you know what the Trinity is. We're making, maybe you think, I don't need to know that. Yes, you do, actually. It's really important that you know that you're not a, a, you know, a one who worships many gods. <laughs> That's not what we believe. He's one God in three persons. And he exists in community and relationship. Man, there's all kinds of things that we need to know about the Trinity because we're made in his image. It's good for you to learn the story of the Bible. And we're making massive assumptions that you know the story of the Bible. If we don't have a space within our church that we're intentionally helping you learn that. I mean, I've been reading through um, in my devotional time. I'm kind of in the minor prophets right now. And whoo, it's been a struggle, you know? At the end of, I mean, I've told Kathy this several times. I don't have a clue what I read this morning. Man, there's a lot of destroying going on, so I kind of know. And sometimes I can feel a little shame about this because, dude, I'm a pastor of a church and I took seminary classes on this. But the reality is this, is that there's, there's a reminder, even in me remind, reading Minor Prophets, that there's a story of the Bible that I need to remind myself of often, even when I'm jumping into a Minor Prophet. And there's a, look, you don't need to feel bad about this. We've done a poor job as a church to help you understand what the story of the Bible is. So don't feel shame right now if you're going, I have no idea what he's talking about. I just know this is a really big, thick book and I don't have a clue what's going on, right? All I'm saying is that part of what we're trying to do as a church is apply what Paul is emphasizing here. I don't want to make assumptions. We need spaces and places where the highest value of that space is that we're going to learn. You need to learn how to live this new life. And some of us in there not only need to learn, but we need to unlearn some really bad things that you've learned somewhere else, either in home or in a church that wasn't healthy. All right, first point. This, this new life, it must, that's what Paul's trying to get after it. It must be learned. Secondly, this new life is an advertisement. It's a billboard. It is showing others the redemptive power of the gospel. Whether you like that or not, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you publicly say, I am a Christian, then your life is an advertisement. I don't know how else to say that. My life is. And Paul is emphasizing that in these, these kind of behavioral codes, so to speak, that he uses here. And so I, like I'll work through these really fast, but I want to kind of land on the emphasis that Paul seems to be at here. There are five different groups that he points out within the context of the church. There's older men, older women, probably 50, 40 and above, all right? Uh, younger women, younger men, maybe 20, 25 and above. I mean, this is like, there's no exact age because he didn't tell us that this is people guessing. Uh, and the fifth group would be kind of slaves here. And in each of these groups, he's giving specific behaviors that need to be what you're living into and learning how to live. So let's just start in verse two. Just work these really fast here. So older, women, older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, sound in faith, love and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach 
what is good. Transitions over in verse four, starts with young women. Young women are to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home. Please do not hear Paul saying that women should not work outside of the home. That's not what he's after here. People have taken this text and abused it and made it mean things that it's not supposed to mean. All Paul is trying to say here is this, and you got to remember in this time when he's writing, people didn't go somewhere to work, right? Your work was at home. Like there are agricultural society and there's ways that husbands and wives were working together and making this happen. And you got to remember the Cretan way of life was laziness. So on essence, a young woman, don't be lazy. Manage the affairs of the home. Work with your husband in this area. This is what was what going on within the church there. So he's not saying don't ever work outside the house. That's not what he's talking about. Be kind. And here's the other one that gets people in the uproar. Submission, submission to their husband. I'm not doing a sermon on marriage. I'm not doing a sermon unpacking the idea of submission. I just would say this. Number one, it's in Ephesians chapter five. It's not culturally based. It's creation based and gospel central. If you have a husband who imperfectly is living self-sacrificially the way Jesus sacrificed himself for the church, then there's a way that the woman will respond, respond with joy to follow your leadership. This is not you being a dictator. This is not you being an absolute jerk because I'm the man of the household. You got to tell me what to, I got to tell you what to do or you don't have to be a part of the decisions because I'm the man of the household. No, that's just stupidness, all right? So if you want more understanding of submission and what that actually means within the context of the Bible and what Paul's trying to get after, give me a call. I'd love to talk to you more about it, but I just can't do it in this sermon, all right? So was that, does that suffice you enough? I just want to make sure Hopefully, if, if you don't get stuck there, just kind of like set that aside. All right, submission to their husbands in the same way encourage young men to be self-controlled and that's what they need the most, amen? I just find that really funny. I, I don't know, but I know that even now as a 51-year-old, I still need that, but I remember in my 20s, I needed self-control. Goodness gracious, I was a train wreck with all that's going on in my body, amen? Okay. Yeah. So then the next group, the last group he talks about is slaves. And remember, the purpose of Paul in writing the book of Titus is not to talk about the evil and the wickedness and the sinfulness of someone owning another human being, right? That's not what he's trying to do here. And even slavery in this time was a little bit different than what slavery was in our nation. And so all Paul is trying to do here is that if this is your place, if this is what you are and what you're doing, then this is how you're to behave as a follower of Jesus Christ. This is how you're to behave as someone who is now in Christ. He goes on. And you can probably bring an employee and employer relationship in this uh, here. But verse nine, slaves are to submit their masters in everything to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness. And there's a lot to be said in these things. It really is. And the uh, the, the beauty that you see a multi-generational kind of learning and a multi-generational where, where we care about one another's maturity. So it's just not about me growing. I'm also concerned about someone else growing and the influence that I can have in their life. It's not just Titus and the pastors that are doing all the teaching. There's a, there's a way that all of us are kind of sharing in this teaching because teaching is more than just monologue. There's also life on life, that kind of stuff. There's, there's self-sacrifice, there's serving, all kinds of things we can say in this. But the point that I think Paul is trying to say is that this is important because your life is an advertisement to the redemptive power of the gospel. And he mentions this three times, once again, repeating something because he's trying to emphasize this. Look what he says, verse five. After talking about 
Young women, be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, submission to their husband. Why, Paul? Why should they do that? Here's the answer. So that God's word will not be slandered. Or another way of putting that, that God's word will not be taken lightly. Verse 8, you see it again. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach. Why, Paul? So that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything. Not one single thing is the emphasis there. Bad to say about us. Again, like once again, man, he's, he's, he repeats to emphasize something here. Verse 10, talking about slaves here. Don't, don't steal, but demonstrating utter faithfulness. Why, Paul? Why is that? So that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. Some of you guys might have a translation where it says attractive. And so that word carries this idea of arranging jewels in order to display their beauty. So, so follow me. Paul is not saying that the gospel needs a sort of like a, a prop to make it beautiful. A jewel by itself has beauty, right? A diamond by itself is beautiful. But if you put other Jewels around, I'm not a jeweler, just bear with me. If you are, you're probably saying, well, you're butchering that. But if you put other jewels around a beauty of a diamond, what does it do for that diamond? It accentuates it, right? It makes it pop. And that's what Paul's trying to say. Like, look, someone can understand intellectually the gospel message. But when that gospel message is also united with a life, that has been genuinely changed. Wow, it pops. And, and here's what I would bet if I'm a betting man, right? I bet most of us in this room can name one person where we say, yeah, that's exactly how it happened for me. I understood the content, but wow, when I met this person and saw the change in his life, it hit. It sunk in. It really had an impact. So Paul is making a, a simple but profound point that is needed for us to hear that our behavior to a watching world matters. I said this in the first sermon. The greatest gift that we can give someone is our transformed and transforming presence. The gospel of Jesus needs to prove its redemptive power in public life. Christianity and the gospel can change you. And it has changed you. And this world needs to see it. So in essence, man, like, Maybe I'm making this too simplistic. I don't know. But in essence, this is what Paul is saying is evangelism 101. Evangelism 101 is not learning the four spiritual laws. It's helpful. And some of you have no idea what the four spiritual laws are, do you? It's okay. You don't need to, right? But it's, a, it's a way to kind of share the gospel. That crusade is used for years and years and years. And it's, and it's a helpful way. A lot of people have come to faith in Christ through that, that gospel presentation. Some of you learn a gospel tradition of like the, kind of a newer one that's out right now. It's like three circle evangelism. They kind of walk through creation, fall, redemption, or the fall, you know, cross and new life. Great 
great tool to be used, right? You know, but that's not, I wouldn't say that's not evangelism 101. It's not us trying to figure out how we're going to answer all the questions that our neighbors have about the Bible, about God, about Jesus. And I'm not saying these are not important, that we should not have good, solid answers here and think through that. But sometimes we put all this major pressure to make sure I say things right and make sure I articulate things right, make sure my argument's compelling and, and you know, draws them in. Paul's just going, look, here's evangelism 101. These are important and we need to do these. We need classes here and we need to be intentional in helping you learn that. All right, some of the work we're doing, all right? But I'm just saying, look, if that, we could do all that, but if your life is void of change, we can run out here today and pass out the four spiritual laws to everybody that lives in J-Town, but if they come encounter you and meet you and your life is the very opposite of this message. Guys, look, it's like having bad breath, right? It's repulsive. So Paul's just going, look, man, evangelism 101 is how you treat people, how you live before people. Are you kind? Are you gracious? Are you loving? Are you patient? Brennan Manning said this several years ago, and unfortunately, it's still true today, and it's pretty convicting when I read this, because none of us have arrived. It's not like anybody's knocking it out of the ballpark in this area. We all got growth to do. But he says this, the greatest single cause of atheism in our world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world finds unbelievable. So for good or bad, if you're a Christian, you're a walking advertisement to whether the redemptive power of the gospel is true or not. Just in great fashion, as Paul does, because when you hear that, depending on how you're wired and put together and depending on what kind of week you had, you can feel a lot of guilt. You say, man, I, I don't think I did very well this week, right? So what do we do with that? Look what Paul does here, starting in verse 11. And that's why I say this new life, it is possible. You can do this. You can be this kind of person. Why do I have that confidence? Well, look what Paul says, verse 11, for the grace of God. Just can we sit with that for just a second? Here's how I want you to behave. You're a walking billboard. This is how I want you to live in a watching world. For the grace of God. Doesn't that just kind of like breathe some life into you, Right? When you just hear that, it's like, okay, it's not on me, right? It's not up to you. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny ungodliness, or some translations say, to say no to ungodliness and worldly lust and to live in sensible, righteous, and godly way in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, 
eager, eager to do what is good. Paul is always reminding us anytime that he kind of unpacks how you're to live. This is the behaviors. Here's the fruit of the Spirit. This is what your life is to look like. He's reminding us over and over in all of his letters, guess what? It's not up to you. This isn't a burden now you got to carry. All right, do a better job tomorrow. You sucked last week, but this week you're going to do better. No, it's not this massive burden that you've got to carry because it's not up to you. It's the grace of God who is our teacher. Paul is emphasizing here that grace is both a saving event. The grace of God brings salvation and it is also a transforming power. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And you can imply this here, say yes to living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The grace of God, this same grace that you've got to think on, right, that, that pursued you. Like, just, just sit with that. You, look, I know some of you will say, well, I, you know, I came to faith in Christ because I grew up in a Christian home. And they brought me to church. They, they lived the gospel, shared the gospel, blah, 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 blah. And you think about this idea that God pursued you. It's like, well, yeah, I kind of see that, but I kind of pursued him. No! You didn't have a say what family you're going to roll in. It's not like God showed up and said, hey, are you good with the Riggs family? Think that's be a good place for you? No, he sent you there. And he pursued after you. He chased after you. Yeah, maybe he used your parents to do that chasing, but dadgummit, that was God empowering them to go after you. It was the grace of God that pursued you. It's the grace of God that opened your eyes to your need of him. You didn't wake up one morning going, I need Jesus. No, God started that work. He opened your eyes so that you could see your need of him. It is by the grace of God that he gave you faith so that you could respond in repentance and faith. And now it's the grace of God that assures that you are fully righteous, that you are fully holy, blameless, loved, accepted in him. And all of this has nothing to do with what you did yesterday. It's a gift. And Paul reminds us in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. We'll get to that next week. Not trying to steal any thunder, but here it is. He saved us. How? Why? Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So hear what Paul is saying. This grace of God that was radically committed to saving you is the same grace that is radically committed to transforming you and making you beautiful. Amen. And it will happen because it's not up to you. I love how one author puts this. The one-way love of God, which is a great way to think about grace, is the essence of any lasting transformation that takes place in the human experience. The law of God is not our teacher. Because it does nothing to the heart. In fact, I would say it gives no lasting change and it can be just a quick fix. And that's not what I'm after here. That's not what Paul is after. 
And that's not what Jesus is after. Jesus wants you to become this kind of person, not just to do certain behaviors. Yes, doing those behaviors can get you to become like that, but the end goal is not to check a list. I had self-control today, check. I was submissive to my husband today, whatever that means, check. I didn't lay on the couch and just drink a beer today, check. I'm not lazy, right? I know I'm being kind of silly up here, but I think you guys are getting hearing what I'm trying to say is like, Jesus is after more than that. He wants you to become this kind of person. And the grace of God is the only way that that can happen because it's the only thing that changes a heart. So yes, <laughs> grace will be messy. It will. And as your pastor and as representative of all of our pastoral team, we're okay with that messiness. Because the last thing we want to do is bring in law. It may make us look nice on the outside. Oh, look how good we are. <laughs> so it will be messy. Because the grace is the long game, not the quick fix. Grace takes time. Slow growth. And in fact, it may feel like you're getting worse before you're getting better. Ever been there? Been a place where you feel like, oh my. I feel like when I was 25, I was more mature than what I am at 45. What's going on there? Well, I'll tell you what's going on. You got a good father. And at 25, you needed some wins. And you couldn't handle what God knew about you at 25. After 20 years, all right, now you're kind of ready. Right? What I say at the very beginning, we're always in a posture of learning. None of us have arrived. And grace will keep us humble because we will see maturity and growth in our lives and it will guard us from pride because we realize, hey, this wasn't up to me. God's the one that's committed to my transformation and he's making this happen. So you can mean this. Paul does too. You can become this person because of the grace of God that was radically committed to your salvation is also radically committed to your change. So let me ask you, what do you need to learn? Just something coming up consistently in your life to where, I mean, I, I need to take some time to learn this and grow in this. I mean, God's given us a wonderful gift of the World Wide Web. And there's a ton of content on there that's absolutely horrible. And there's a lot of content on there that's actually really helpful. Man, maybe you want to know what the story of the Bible is. Well, come talk to me. I'll, I can point you in great places to help you learn that. Where do you need to learn? Where do you need to repent? Maybe you had a really stinky attitude this week at work. I mean, there's grace for that. 
But also grace empowers us going to our boss and going, you know what? Man, I, I was having a rough week last week. I'm really sorry. I apologize for my attitude and the presence I brought into the workplace. Thankful for a job. I, I don't know if your boss is not a Christian or not, but man, I, even as a Christian boss, I, I get thrilled when someone does that. It's like, thank you. Because your attitude was pretty stinky, actually. Thanks for acknowledging that. It's really helpful. What an impact that would have on someone that doesn't know Christ. But maybe you're here and you're tired. You've tried and tried and tried in certain areas of your life and you just feel like a failure. Maybe you just feel absolutely overwhelmed. And maybe what you need to hear this morning is this. I will only get better when I realize it doesn't matter if I don't get better. Some of you need to hear you're safe. It's okay to still be struggling with the same sin that you've struggled with for 10 years. It's okay. It is. And maybe some of you need to just kind of sit with the love that God has for you, period. No matter how well of an advertisement you were this week or how bad you were, his love doesn't change for you. I'll close with this. Um, I always take uh, my boys on a, like a little weekend thing uh, when they get around 11, 12, 13, um, and the weekend just basically we go and we talk more than this, but we talk about sex. That's what we talk about. That's the big part of the weekend. Uh, and we usually have conversations about it before this weekend, but this is kind of a dedicated weekend to really unpack not just sex, but your physical changes and all that's going on in your body, blah, blah, blah. So Davin, who's my youngest, we had, went with a good friend of ours and another dad's a good friend of mine uh, to do this weekend together. And... Um, and so <laughs> some of the things that kind of come out that weekend is, is sort of humorous. So one is that, you know, on the way home, Davin goes, I, I just don't know if I can look at you two in the same way ever again after hearing all that goes on with mom and dad to create me. I like, I get it, son. It's still gross for me when I think about my parents too, but there's going to come a day where you'll be all right with it, right? Um. And so, yeah, thanks for laughing. It is just so funny. The good stuff. Um, but one of the things I said to these guys, um, me and this other dad kind of shared the teaching, kind of after talking about sex and God's desire for it, his design for it, the exclusivity of it, you know, and just saying, hey, this is what God wants. He wants your best for this. And, and I struggled, I don't know. I don't know if this was good or not. Honestly, it's still kind of I already said it, so it doesn't matter. Uh, I looked at both these boys at the very end of that talk and just said this, hey guys, um, you're gonna fail when it comes to sex. No one, get, even if you get married as a virgin, it doesn't mean you come in there unbroken sexually. Every single one of us, every single one of us has failed in some capacity and large capacities when it comes to sex. And you will too. 
I'm not trying to say that to give you permission to like, all right, go do whatever I want to. No, I'm saying that so that you know where to go when you fail. Because where you need to go is to God because he's a God who forgives. That's where you go. Don't hide. Do not hide. That's where power gets gets in there. You know what I'm saying? You hide it, it gives it power. Come out, be clean. Confess this. God is a God who is gracious and kind and loving, and he will forgive you. Listen to me. That message empowers obedience. Not if you have sex, your life's going to stink, right? If you have sex before you get married, your marriage is going to fail. If you have sex before you get married, your purity balloon is all emptying out. Like, that's, that's law. That's threat. That doesn't empower obedience. It actually powers shame and hiding. And some of us in this room are still crippled by that message. So I look at those boys and I said, look, look at me, buddy. Look at me. You're going to blow it. But know that there is deep, abiding, clean slate forgiveness in God. Run to him. Run to him. And that empowers the kind of behavior and the living that Titus is talking about here. And may we be that kind of people. Let's pray. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash jtown.